All right, open up the um, Ephesians 3. I just want to pray this for you. This is one of those prayers that has, uh, you probably, many of you probably know it, but it's a great prayer. I want to pray this before I open up the word. Uh, Ephesians 3, verse 14, and it reads, For this reason, Paul is saying, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is how Paul prays for the church, and I want to pray that for you. It's one of those prayers that on our own we wouldn't pray, because in a way, it's almost beyond us to understand what he's saying. But he is saying, I pray, that almost as if the most important thing for you is that knowledge of Christ and love, and to understand how much God loves you is probably the most important thing you need right now and every day. So let's uh, pray. Lord, I uh, metaphorically bow my knee to you. I bow in reverence to you. Um, Even when we start the prayer, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's recognition that you are indeed a great God, but you're also our Father. And every family gets their really their life, sustenance, and identity from you. And so, God, we come to you because you are rich. You are rich in glory and grace and mercy, and I pray that you would be pleased to pour on us your power that we might be strengthened in our inner being, that we might be people that no longer are tossed like the waves of the sea back and forth by our emotions or by the news of the day, or the uh, condition of our bank account. I pray that God would be strengthened in our hearts, specifically that Christ might live there, that Jesus will dwell with us. He'll take up residence in our lives. And as he does, I pray that God, our relationship will be one of such an intimacy. I pray everybody's relationship with Jesus will be so intimate that they'll know, they'll start to understand how much you really love us, that we aren't abandoned. We aren't forgotten, but that you love us intensely. And help us to understand the height of that, how deep that goes, how wide that goes, and really, honestly, God, it surpasses our knowledge. We love you, Father, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. It was my first year at Moody Bible Institute, and I was leaving systematic theology class with a fellow student as we headed to the cafeteria for lunch. Our professor just finished lecturing on a topic of total depravity. Total depravity is a doctrine that teaches that because of Adam's sin, human beings are born into spiritual slavery to that sin. And as a result of that sin, we do things we don't want to do, and we don't do the things we want to do. And... It also teaches, without God's help, we'd neither seek him, or reach, seek him or reach out for him and that we are hopelessly lost. We need someone to come and save us. 
Actually, the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, chronicles that when it says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, spiritually blind. And that's what total depravity is, is spiritual blindness. Well, we were in a cafeteria, and after we got our food and placed it on plastic blue cafeteria trays, we found an open table, sat down, and began to talk. My friend, I just want to tell you, was an extremely nice and kind man. He was born to faithful and pious missionaries. He's homeschooled in China. He grew up in a loving home with one younger sister, and they never fought. That's how nice they were. And as he was taking a bite of some warm macaroni and cheese, I could see in his eyes that he was lost in thought. He was thinking hard about something. So I asked him, hey, what's up? You seem a million miles away. After gulping down a big swallow of unchewed macaroni, he wiped his mouth with a crumpled up paper napkin and he said, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I said, buy what? This total depravity stuff. How can anyone say man is totally corrupt? If we are made in God's image, there has to be more goodness in us than bad. Of course, people sin, but I have met loads of people in my life who do more kind and loving things than wicked things. Total depravity looks on humanity with very dark and negative lenses. And to me, that is not a healthy way to view the world. It's very depressing. And then he looked at me and he said, well, what do you think? He caught me off guard. I choked down a piece of rubbery chicken, took a swig of orange Fanta soda pop, and here's what I said. Total depravity is the only thing that helps me make sense out of this crazy world. He put down his fork and he leaned in closer and he said, what do you mean? Don't you think God has made a wonderful world to live in with wonderful people? Well, for the next 15 minutes, I proceeded to tell him what I experienced during my four years as a non-Christian attending a party-happy undergraduate college. I informed him how I was both on the rugby team and joined a Greek social fraternity, and I began to describe how when guys get together away from home and they drink from kegs of beer on the sidelines and frat houses, all manner of chaos and devious behavior ensues. I shared a good number of very dark stories. At times, I tried to shock him just to see the look on his face. And when he looked especially disgusted, I knew I proved my point. There he sat, horrified, saying nothing at all as he chewed on his macaroni. I ended the discussion by saying this. College, to me, was like the Lord of the Flies. He said, Lord of the Flies? What is the Lord of the Flies? I said, oh, the Lord of the Flies is a classic piece of literature. It was meant to depict when a group of well-educated, civilized boys from England get shipwrecked and left to themselves, they eventually turn into a pack of brute beasts. It is a story meant to illustrate depravity. The discussion ended, and we both went to our next classes. That very same night, as I was getting ready to study the book of Romans, I did what I usually do. I began with prayer. Normally when I pray, I make a few requests and thank God, and then I begin to study. But this night was different. It was different. I had the direct impression that God was not pleased with me. 
It was strange. Instantly, my mind was brought back to the discussion I had with my friend about depravity. And it wasn't a voice, but clearly it felt like God was talking to me. And here's what he said. Chris, never boast about sinful things you've done in the past or the disgusting things you've seen others do. And never, ever find delight in them. When you do, it is as if you are cheering when Jesus was spit on, delighting in the blood that flowed when the crown of thorns was pressed down hard on his forehead, encouraging the soldiers to hit with their hammer harder and harder when his hands and feet were nailed to the wooden beams of the cross. Never, ever tell those stories again with delight. And then another thought occurred to me. I'll never forget it. Chris, just imagine what your life would be like if you never sinned. What would your life be like if you never acted out an evil thought? You would be used in so many more ways than you are now. Much of what you are learning is retraining and reconditioning from the scars of sin left on your life. Those sins you just gloried in helped to kill the perfect Son of God. I'll tell you, I never had a prayer time like that in my life before or since, but it changed me. And it left me with the impression of what if? What if? Have you ever wondered, what if you never sinned? How much better, cleaner, joyful, free from problems and worry would your life be? But total depravity has adversely affected all of us and left much of our life with pain, with sorrow, and unwanted tears. These companions are dark marks that leave us and stay with us and linger with us through the long days of our life. And it's not the way it should be. Today we're going to talk about how total depravity has left its mark on Joseph. We have come, as Ken said, this is a book of a week, a day of endings. We've come to the end of Genesis chapter 50. I can't believe we've done it. I, I applaud you. It's hard. Like I thought, you know, when Jared and I were talking to, man, Genesis, great stories. And then, oh man, this is whoo, hard book to get through. But we've made it. In this book, which begins with such enormous promise, ends with a lot of weeping, a lot of it. So let's open up to Genesis. Let's go to the end of 49 and then look at some 50 and we'll finish on the last chapter. Genesis 49, and let's begin in verse 28. Last week, Trevor, Pastor Trevor preached on the blessings, and this is kind of Summarizing it, starting in verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In a cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. 
There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And if we go to verse 15, there's another time when Joseph wept. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, ah, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. There is a lot of weeping in this last section of Scripture. Before we get to it, let's do a lightning quick review of Genesis. Lightning quick. To me, as I look back on Genesis, I see two main narrative threads that are weaved through the pages. The first is that this book, Genesis, is all about God and his glory. That is the main emphasis. That's the point. Specifically, his redemptive work and the glory that comes from how he redeems us. It begins with the awe-inspiring declaration, let there be light. And sure enough, there was light. God began to do amazing thing after amazing thing. He created plants, animals, and people out of dust. Who can create people out of dust? He then chose one small, small, old, wandering man named Abraham and gives him a, really, a quite shocking promise. You will become a great nation and will have more children than the stars in the sky and the sands in the sea. Mind you, mind you, which you know we've been over this a lot, he and his wife were on 100 years old when that promise was given. 100 years old. How could this be? Well, it was. And sure enough, along came his son Isaac, then Jacob his grandson, then his 12 great-grandsons that became known today as the nation Israel. And through this nation, he gave the greatest promise of all. All people on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring, and that's in the singular offspring. And we know that singular offspring as the man we call Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. So to this day, almost 4,000 years away from this book, he's still keeping his promises. That's to his glory. The second narrative thread through this book is it's man and his shame. While this book rose up to amazing heights, Man, did it plunge to horrifying depths. That's why I think I say to you, Jared, it was exciting to begin this book, and then you get into it, it's like, oh my. Let's have Ken preach on Judah. <laughs> All I have to do is name three notorious cities which speak for themselves, just three. Here they are. Babel, 
Sodom, and Gomorrah. Fire, brimstone, destruction, and death. Throughout the pages of Genesis, the dark stain that is depravity has been etched on this historical record. It's showcasing our shame collectively. Shameful. They are the ongoing consequences of a fallen race, ending more times than not in pain and sorrow. And if you do not think humanity is depraved, go ask Dinah in the city of Shechem. This dark stain all started with one sin, the original sin. We know it. Go to Genesis 2.17. 2.17. And from this one original sin came death. It is death. It is death. And the byproducts of death that are still plaguing us. From this promise. Listen to how clear God is, starting in verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree. You get it all, man. You get it all except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that. You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Certainly die. When God makes a promise, he keeps a promise. You must not eat from the tree, you will die. It's certain, and there is no, I mean, there is no possible misunderstanding here. None, none. You eat, you die. Simple as that. And our main problem through the years is that God, people don't take God at his word. That's really our main problem. When he says something, he means it. And when it comes to the first sin, he could not have been more clear. And to their, Adam and Eve, in our everlasting shame, they ate. And so sure enough, death has been our constant bedfellow ever since. And it is death that brings the pain. And it is death that ushers in the sorrow that we daily experience. That's where it comes from. It's from sin. Sin, death. Sorrow. This pain and sorrow may have started out small in Genesis 3, biting an unforbidden fruit. That's all, that's all he did. That's all he did. But by the time we get to Genesis 50, it has snowballed into an unstoppable force. It's like an avalanche that ruins everything in its path. Death's sting is why Joseph wept. And we keep weeping. Death was never God's original intent. It never was. And he warned us because he knew it would bring along with two horrible results. And we see these results in Genesis 49.50. The first is that death destroys the image of God. In other words, it separates us. Sorrow comes from the separation when we have been, our body has been separated from our soul and from each other. The word death, as Wayne Grudem explains, is a temporary cessation of bodily life and a separation of the soul from the body. Life as we know it, with blood coursing and air entering, exhaling, inhaling, 
When death occurs, it completely ceases and the soul leaves the physical body. You've seen it at funerals. In that casket is clay. One minute a chest is rising and falling, and the next the person breathes their last, and there is nothing. That is death. In this story, the process of death is humiliating, specifically for one of the patriarchs, Jacob. The man, the man who once wrestled with the angel all night, and it says he won in one passage of Scripture. Now look how it describes him in Genesis 50, 30, uh, actually 49, 33. It's, terror. it's a terrible picture. It says, he drew up his feet. He probably side-saddled up to the bed, drew in his curved little claw-like feet, put him under the covers, and he breathed his last. Whew. This is a pitiful scene. It's a scene that I have seen so many times of so many people that used to go to this church. Once they were robust, often they would argue with me about a sermon or they'd sing victory in Jesus with robust joy. And then the next moment, they're barely able to lift their arms and breathe in air. It's depressing. Death destroys the majesty that the body was designed to be, created in the image of God. Where youth is withered away as the body grows tired, brittle, and cold. This is not the way it was meant to be. This is not right. And so as a result, Joseph mourns. It says he falls on his dad's face. He weeps and he kisses him on the cheek. In fact, if we go to chapter 50 right after verse 1, we get two more months of mourning. Listen to what happens. Verse 2 and Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel, which is God's given name for Jacob. Forty days were required for it. That is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. This is quite a spectacle. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, if now I found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father with him, went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only the children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. So there, can you imagine? They're heading north up through Goshen and up to Canaan with chariots. Probably see dust clouds with a large company of people just a per morning parade. I remember when I read stories when Abraham Lincoln was shot in a Ford theater. They got him on a black train and they would take him from city to city. And the nation would mourn. The nation of Israel was mourning. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. 
When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abazel, Mizraim, it is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded him, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. The most obvious thing about this account is verse 1, really. I mean, the rest, there's a lot of pageantry. It's probably immense numbers of people. I can see, you know, just mourning. But to me, the thing that sticks out the most is how much Joseph loved his dad in verse 1. After 147 years, Jacob returns back to the dust from whence he came. To transport his dead body back to the promised land, Joseph had the Egyptian funeral directors embalm him. Egyptians followed a pagan burial ritual. They embalmed because they thought it brought someone immortality. Joseph had his dad embalmed because he didn't want his dad to stink. It was a rot. He didn't want his corpse to rot. It was a sad scene. It's a tragic scene, actually. Death is always sad because it interferes with God's design. I was having a discussion with my son last weekend after his surgery. He's recovering from, you know, something that's pretty intense for him. It's intense for all of us. And he asked me, and he said, what is the purpose of life? Because it often seems really sad. My response is simple, to worship God and enjoy Him forever. Life, in other words, life is meant to be enjoyed, but because of sin, it often can only be endured. Death has a nasty way of turning that which was meant to be joy into endurance, sometimes long. Well, I was also writing this sermon. I was writing this on Friday. Friday was September 26th. September 26th, 13 years ago, my dad died. Sin was taken from me, someone that should be around a lot longer than he is. I miss him, and that death has created an ache in my soul that has not quite left. And there's days when it's more intense. Never leaves. Most of you in here have lost someone that you love dearly. And it stings. Death stings. People who try to downplay death are not giving enough credit to the wonder and the greatness of being alive. We were meant for joy. Death has interfered. We are made to live forever. That's the design. But death has become our uninvited guest and sin is the one who invited him over. So we have stopped sinning. The second... The second consequence is from death is we have sorrow not just from separation but also alienation from one another. Alienation is when sin separates people relationally from one another. Instead of being faced, smiling, we turn our backs on one another and we think ill thoughts. It's sick. Listen what happens in 15 to 18 of chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us 
and pay us back for all the evil that we did to them. So in their mind, they're, they're contriving out of malice, just really evil to their brother. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Why does Joseph weep here? That's the question. Why does he weep? One commentator writes, after all he has done for his brothers. I mean, you remember those, the stories. Probably his brother come and they came and they met with him and he put that goblet in their thing and invited them all to come back. And It's a long story. After all he has done for his brothers, they still perceive him as a potential killer and one who thrives on retribution. It is as though the whole ordeal has been in vain, one commentator writes. My observation, I think Joseph weeps because, weeps because it is as if they haven't learned anything through all the goodness he showed. It's like they forgot. Why do people so easily mistrust one another? You can be kind and you can be generous and loving towards someone for years and you do one thing or you don't call someone for a few weeks and they never talk to you again. What is wrong with us? Honestly, we are so easily offended and quick to mistrust. I think that's the work of sin and sin's depravity in our heart. It's a sickness. We all have it. Malice, the idea that we are quick to think wrongly about others' motives and intentions is like mold on a piece of bread. You don't use it for a couple days. You put it in a cupboard and a shadow. And then when you grab it back a few days later, you can't really bite into it because it's ugly with green and brown splotches on it. Human relationships are just like that. Man, you do one thing. And you lose a friend. What's wrong with us? Personally, some of, well, seem like this is what happened with Joseph. I'll be honest with you, and his brothers. Like, they're talking to each other. Maybe that Joseph will hate us. How do they? Go talk to him. While their, Jacob, their father, was alive, they were not worried that Joseph would act out in retribution out of deference to their dad. But now that he was dead, it was hard for the brothers' depraved hearts to trust. This reality of our fallen nature is sad and it's strange. Personally, some of the worst things I've ever seen is when a patriarch, a dad, a grandfather, or a matriarch, a mom or grandmother, in a family dies and the brothers and sisters fight for what's written in the will. I even officiated at a wedding one time, or not wedding, a funeral one time, where the whole family said, Pastor, we don't want a eulogy because we have nothing good to say about our mother. Just make it short. What? People hold grudges. Doesn't Jesus tell us to be kind and forgive one another as he forgave us? Treat each other better than yourself? Put other people before yourself? Love um, 
Love for, forgets, does not remember the wrongs. Is that what love is supposed to do? Well, I'll tell you what, this whole idea of holding things against and thinking malice is the bitter root of sin working in the hearts of us one towards another. Loving one another is not easy, but we must try. We must, or else hatred, division, jealousy, envy, selfish ambition will kill us. It will consume us all because depravity never sleeps. Never sleeps. So how do you stop it? How do you curb it? How do you put ointment on it? There's only one solution for the damage death has caused and is still causing. Right now, even in the people sitting in this place, there's only one solution. Some of you are dealing with the sorrow of someone you lost. Some of you have malice toward a brother, a sister, a husband, a wife, or a friend. If we let depravity continue to soak deep in our heart, like Joseph, this trail of tears of sin will continue. So, what's the solution? There's only one. We find it in 19 and 20. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly. Andrew spoke about this and he said, this is mercy. It's mercy. Joseph, in a position of power, extends mercy and grace. He could have gotten angry, but he came back to them in love and kindness. This is the only ointment that heals and restores a world that sin and death have damaged. It's the only thing we have to extend. It is what God did for us on the cross. Jesus did not deserve death, but his love and mercy for us compelled him to die for our transgressions. So now our job is to extend, extend that same kind of attitude towards those who have offended us and hurt us. Those we have disagreements with. Mercy is the only thing that stops the sorrow. It's the only thing. Honestly, as I'm thinking through this sermon, I, life is hard. It's hard. Death is hard. Disagreement's hard. But what seems unfixable and broken and depressing, God promises to turn it back into good. He does. The question is, do you believe that? It's one of those things, don't give me that. Romans 8, 28, when I'm suffering, all things work together for good, those who love God. It's still true. It's still true. The question is, do you believe it? And so as we come to the Final book of Genesis. Joseph dies in verse 22 to 26. It says, Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. He lived 110 years. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. So God's glory is still going to be shown. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones from here. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him and he's put in a coffin in Egypt. And then I want you to notice something. Watch how the next book begins. It's really interesting. Just the first seven verses, or eight. These are the names of the sons of Israel. It's kind of a great summary of Genesis who came to Egypt with Jacob. 
each with his household. Reuben, Sibion, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly because God keeps his promises. Keeps his promise to Abraham, same promise to Isaac, same promise to Jacob. So they are fruitful. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the lands filled with them like sand on the seashore. God promised that. But then man comes in. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. It's a foreboding sentence that paints the path for Exodus. John Cougar Mellencamp would sum up this by saying, Oh yeah, life goes on. Long after the thrill of living is gone, it keeps going. Life still goes on and the same two things are true. God is still there to extend grace and mercy for his glory and depravity is still close behind. So in this life that you now have to live from this point on, you have, you have a choice, a couple of choices. Here's your choices. Do I trust God in his goodness? Will I wait for his promises, even though they seem a long time coming? Will I trust him? Or do I trust myself, my reasoning, my desires, and run after sin's promises? Sin's promises, they promise immediate return, but they're empty. God's promises require faith, but they're solid. John Piper said, faith is the battle between the promises of God and the promises of sin where God wins. Who will you let win? The more you choose sin, the more tears will come. I'll tell you what, looking back in my own life, I regret so much what I've done. The mistakes and the sins I still make, and the failures that follow me, depravity still a hound on my heels. But something else is at work. Mercy. God will use my failings to form my heart. And I have seen that his promises are the only things that last and give you satisfaction. They are the only things that satisfy. 